This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. In this episode today, we're going to be taking a closer look at a documentary called Not Carol. Some of the topics that we touch on today may be hard to hear as we're going to be talking about postpartum psychosis and infanticide. So judge for yourself if you feel like this is something that you're able to listen to at this time. And if you decide not, we will be here available for you when you're ready. I'm really happy to bring you this conversation with producers, directors, Veronica Brady and Eamon Harrington, who worked on this documentary for quite some time. I very first met Veronica when Joy Burkhardt from 2020 Mom had invited me to come down to support Carol in her sentencing. I went down to the courthouse, kind of not knowing what to expect there, not knowing yet that there was a documentary being made in a film crew. And that was also my introduction to Carol and her family. I was there present for the sentencing and honored to have given a statement in support of her to the judge. Unfortunately, through all of the hard work that everyone had done to support her, lawyers, expert witnesses, and other supports, Carol was found guilty of killing her three young daughters. Since then, I've had the pleasure to be on the board of Postpartum Support International with Veronica and have seen this documentary that is now going to be coming out to all of you. And let me tell you, the amount of work that went into this and the storytelling and visual storytelling of this documentary and of Carol's story is pretty amazing. It's very intense and also a story that needs to be heard and other people's stories that need to be heard. This is really, really important that we're having these open dialogues and understanding more deeply what happens to moms who are dealing with postpartum psychosis, how we can better be supporting them from the beginning, from before it even happens. And certainly there is a whole lot that happens after a tragedy that we could be doing a lot more about, especially supporting women and family through these trials. I'd love to tell you a little bit more about our guest. Eamon Harrington has co-owned Planet Grande Pictures since forming the company in 1993 with John Watkin. 
During that time, he has produced and directed hundreds of hours for all the major broadcast and cable outlets, winning seven Emmys along the way. Other industry honors include a Peabody Award and a DuPont Columbia Baton. Prior to forming Planet Grande, Eamon spent three years as head of production at VH1 in New York. Eamon has directed dozens of documentaries and unscripted series. Eamon has directed dozens of documentaries and unscripted series. Emmy award-winning docs include Grandpa, Do You Know Who I Am? with Maria Shriver, Shades of a Single Protein, Positive, A Journey into AIDS, and In Full Effect. Eamon is a hands-on producer-director and, and as such frequently shoots many of the projects he works on. That same hands-on approach brings him into the edit room on nearly every project. Veronica Brady is a director, producer, and archivist. Her varied career in theater, TV, and film includes directing over 100 plays, helming three theater companies as artistic director, work on many television shows, and numerous documentary and feature film productions. Veronica has received an Emmy, numerous TV awards, and ovation and LA Weekly recognition for her theater work. Some of her most recent film work as archival producer includes documentaries Tiny Shoulders, Rethinking Barbie, Love 99, Not Carol, Johnny Strange, Born to Fly, and Ethel. What I can tell you in addition to their bios is what I've seen personally, how much care and effort and attention that they've put into this documentary is just so apparent. You can see it in the documentary that's very intense and powerful and meaningful. You walk away really being able to develop a sense of understanding and compassion for Carol and what she and her family went through. So let's meet Eamon and Veronica. Welcome, Eamon and Veronica. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you guys on to talk about the documentary, Not Carol, having kind of been able to see it and be impacted by it so deeply. I'm really, really excited for this to get out into the community. So if you can start with kind of giving us a synopsis of what this documentary is about, that would be great. So Not Carol, the film, the documentary, is a look at maternal mental illness, specifically postpartum psychosis, even though we do look at sort of the whole kind of spectrum of postpartum illnesses in the film. Mm-hmm. And when we set out to make it, we wanted to find a case that was active that we could sort of use as the anchor to the film because the issue itself is so broad and far-reaching. And this was, I guess, five years ago now in 2014 when we sort of set that goal for ourselves. Shortly after we discussed that in the office, Veronica found a case here in Los Angeles involving a woman named Carol Coronado. And Carol was arrested for the murder of her three young daughters, all of whom were under the age of two and a half years old. So within a couple of days of learning about that particular incident, we reached out to Carol's legal team and mentioned to them that we wanted to make a film about maternal mental illness and that we'd like to use Carol's case as the anchor to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The lawyer who we spoke to, Steve Allen, then reached out to the family and everyone seemed to be on board. And we began what what I guess was a four or five-year journey looking at postpartum illness, but through the prism specifically of the Carol Coronado murder case. Mm -hmm. So the film is sort of a crime story somehow wrapped up in a sort of advocacy and an information film dealing with postpartum illness. 
Okay, beautiful. Thank you for that. What I think is so unique is just what you described, that you're really following a specific case and getting into some of the nooks and crannies of the story, which I don't think we've really been able to see too much before in a documentary of this kind. Yeah, I think that's true. One of the things that we really wanted to cover was perhaps all the aspects of all the different variations and the types of postpartum mental illness that women will encounter or could encounter, but what really happens when psychosis sets in and how little information people have about it in our legal system and in our medical system and in our private lives. And so it was really important for us to go out and not just cover Carol's case, but to go out and interview lots of people, which we did for years, about their experiences with uh, postpartum mental illness. And we spoke to a lot of people who had experienced psychosis and, you know, whose families had lived through it with their mom who was suffering. So it was really a thorough investigative look at the illness. Right. And people know so little about this diagnosis and what happens to the mother and the family. And you guys did a really beautiful job of looking at all of those aspects and how the law interacts and what happens to the family members. And there's just so much depth to what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. It was important to us that we populate the film with the leading experts in the country on this issue, or mm-hmm. these issues, I should say, yeah. along with real people, if you will, who have lived through it. And, you know, we refer to them as survivors, but, you know, they're sort of bearing witness to their own experiences. And so we've coupled those two things and we sort of bring Carol's own personal story in and out of those bigger picture thoughts and recollections from the various witnesses that we use. And as I said, we really wanted to sort of make sure that the medical science experts and the psychologists and psychiatrists that are in the film are really were at the top of their game. And these are the people who are, you know, affecting policy and making change in this world. So we did our best to get as many of them into the film as possible. Yeah, I think that's super important, especially the whole legal part and the the medical part, absolutely, and how that all interfaces. I mean, certainly people don't understand the law around these cases and how these cases are tried. And of course, if you're not in the legal system, how would you necessarily know? But what did you guys find out about this process, the law and how families are treated? Well, I think what really surprised us is the lack of understanding. Actually, not even understanding. There is really no law on the books. You know, the United States is the only first world country that does not have an infanticide law on the books. And that means that if a crime like this is committed, there really is no defensible form of homicide. So all of these women are tried as first degree murder cases. And so it means inevitably they will you know, serve life or worse. So there's no place to defend this kind of a crime, which in, as I said, in many other countries, they accept that in England, for example, or Australia, lots of European countries. If a woman commits a crime like this, she's committed to a hospital and not sent to jail because the assumption is that she was ill, that to commit such a crime means that the woman is not in her right mind. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit 
top-ranking kids' educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Part of the complication in our American legal system is that we base the notion of insanity around a statute that was established over 150 years ago. It's called the McNaughton Standard or the McNaughton Statute. And I think that that was originally written and adopted into law in the 1840s. And so even though our medical science has advanced you know, exponentially mm-hmm. since the 1840s, to say the least, right. the standard that we use to define insanity in these cases was established back then. And McNaughton is complicated, you know, but we thought in the film we needed to sort of touch on McNaughton because it really is at the foundation, at the root of these legal cases. And so hopefully, as a result of our film and the work that so many other advocates are doing around the country, our laws can get looked at because our doctors, there's a woman in the film named Michelle Oberman, who's a law professor here in California, but also an expert on postpartum psychosis. And she co-authored a book a few years back called When Women Kill. She's a really, really astute and articulate expert in this area. And she let us know that I believe in Illinois, it's the first state where there has been a move. In fact, I believe the legislature in Illinois has enacted legislation allowing postpartum psychosis to be considered as a legal defense. And that's the first state in the country that does that. That's amazing. So, you know, hopefully that's the beginning of many. Hopefully it's the beginning of a national mandate in that direction. But at least the needle is moving in the right direction. Slowly. (laughs) Yeah, very slowly since 1850 or whatever, we've needed to make a change. I think that too, if like you're saying, the law slowly changes, then there's a new underpinning for understanding this. 
because right now the only understanding we have is that it's a crime and she's a criminal and there's really nothing beyond that. I mean, outside of just people, you know, thinking, oh, maybe this was postpartum related, but most people who don't know anything about it will assume that, you know, that she just needs to be put away and how could she and make all these assumptions about someone. But if the law is truly more representative, then it will change how we also think about these moms. Well, yes. And what happens, I mean, what we examine in the film is how out of sync the medical profession is with the interpretation of the law. You know, the medical doctors here will look at the legal state of what choices really the judge had in Carol's case, which were really very few. I think you were there the day the sentencing happened, and he said, you know, I understand that she is mentally ill, but she's going to have to receive treatment in prison. Well, (laughs) that's not really the best place for a person like her in her condition and the kind of special treatment that she would need and the, and the length of time it would take her to, you know, deal with what happened. You know, this is something that she'll never obviously completely understand herself or get over. And in fact, Carol, as I understand it right now, doesn't really have a memory of what happened, which is quite common in these cases. Mm-hmm. Right. So George Parnham told us, George Parnham is the attorney, the defense attorney for Andrea Yates. And Andrea Yates, if you remember, I guess maybe 15 years ago or so, murdered her five children, drowned her five children, and was a headline case here in the States. And mm-hmm. everyone you know, who read that story immediately jumped to the same conclusion that people right. still jump to when they read a story like this, that they demonized the mom. They said, oh, my God, what a monster, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a natural reaction. You, the crime is so heinous that it's understandable that if you're not educated about this condition, Mm -hmm. you jump to that conclusion. I think it's human nature. Mm -hmm. At any rate, though, George lost the case for Andrea, and Andrea was remanded to a prison. And then he appealed the case, and he won on appeal. And so Andrea now is hospitalized. She's in an institution. She'll never walk on the street again, but she's not in a penitentiary with the kinds of criminals that we associate generally with being in a penitentiary. And she's receiving the medical help that she needs. And I think in the case of Carol Coronado, it's very much the same that her legal team and her family weren't arguing that Carol should be let go, you know, quote unquote, that she should be walking the street again. That what they were arguing for is that they weren't arguing that she didn't commit the crime. They recognized that she did create the crime, but that it was not Carol who created that crime, hence the name of the film. That she was in the throes of a postpartum psychosis at the time, and that what she really needed then and continues to need is hospital care and medical care as opposed to living in a penitentiary where, of course, I mean, we know that she's had trouble in there. We've heard from the family that she's had a lot of trouble in there. You know, this sort of a crime is as frowned upon, if you will, inside the prison system as it is out here on the streets. And so a person who commits that sort of an event is at risk constantly, and Carol is. That's heartbreaking. I was just referring to the title because, you know, as everyone remembered the weeks leading up to the event, people who were close to Carol, they would often say in their interviews to us, it was not Carol. Carol would never do that. Mm-hmm. Carol would never raise her voice. Carol would never hurt her, her children. Carol would never, you know, there was a long list of things that were not Carol. And so I think part of that in the film, you know, she doesn't get a chance to speak for herself. You know, we were never able to interview her by the time we came onto the case. She was already incarcerated. She was 
you know, not well. You know, so we are all trying to speak for her because she wasn't able to and still really, I think, in many ways, isn't able to process and understand and explain, really, or, you know, even grasp it. I don't think she can even really grasp what happened and where she is mm-hmm. right now. Right. And this was how long ago did the act occur? Five years. Right. You know, George Parnham said that with Andrea Yates in her situation, and Andrea is now going on 15 years since mm-hmm. it happened. That if you met her, you know, if you were in the facility where she was or is, and you met her, you would not know that she's mentally ill because she can converse with you and she can have a normal conversation. But in reality, she doesn't really live in a time period post event. Mm. So she sort of lives because it's so painful, right? Mm -hmm. Her acts were so painful, she can't really go there. So she lives in a kind of a bubble where the event is removed. She knows that she's in a facility. She knows that her children are dead, but she can't put those pieces together. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a profound mental illness that I think, and I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if most women that are in Carol's and Andrea's situation are like this, but my guess is they probably are. And especially if they haven't received any help. Right. And so, as I said, the argument is not to have Carol walk the streets necessarily again, but the argument is that she finds herself in a situation where she can get the help that she needs. Mm-hmm. Right. So you guys had quite an education on postpartum psychosis throughout this whole process, yeah. more than the average person. What mm-hmm. are some of the things that really struck you or that you really wish that people would understand about postpartum psychosis? Well, I think for me, the big learning curve was recognizing it as a true illness and that it's treatable. Mm-hmm. You know, the irony of this is not the irony, the tragedy really of this is that these illnesses are by and large temporary and mm-hmm. can be treated. I mean, you you know this world very well and treat people with success all the time. And, you know, there are lots of things available for people. Mm-hmm. There are lots of ways to figure out if a woman is in danger even before the baby comes of possibly mm-hmm. having a postpartum illness. And then once it, if and when it does occur, there are so many things that could be done that have, you know, been very successful with other cases. You know, Carol, this could have been averted. This could have not happened. And I think that's the hardest thing about it. You know, for me, the whole thing was so unjust and it was so difficult to watch this very ill person go through this trial and be sentenced and, you know, sentenced for three consecutive life sentences with no possibility of parole. Mm. She's 30 years old and she loved her children and she was sick and we could have helped her. You know, any doctor who was trained to know any nurse, even her family, had anybody known they would have all gone over there and helped her and taken the kids. No one had ever imagined she would go, you know, that deep into the illness and that this tragedy would occur. So that I think is really the motivation for me to keep, you know, now having understand, completely understanding that it can be averted and this can be cured and people can be helped. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so interesting about the Coronado story is that Carol's husband, Rudy, who basically found his three young daughters murdered in their house, along with Carol's mom. The two of them discovered the babies. 
you know, he said when he went in there and he looked at Carol, who was in the bedroom, on the bed, she was naked, she had a knife. And his instinct, he said, I wanted to kill her. I wanted to kill her. But I didn't. And I don't know what stopped me. And then he went on to tell us that what stopped him was that he knew that this was not his wife. This was not the woman who was the mother of these three girls who she loved so much and was, by all accounts, leading up to the crime, an ideal mother. I mean, she was just a loving mom. But Rudy, the, the thing that sort of really struck me is that Rudy's a tough American Latino guy who you know comes from the streets and he's wily in the ways of the streets. But he stood by his wife and he said, you know, even though I wanted to kill her, I am standing by her 100% because I know that this was not her and that she's the mother of my children and I love her. And this was not her. This is a disease that I didn't know about. And we have to educate people like me. And he really has become an outspoken advocate on behalf of guys who are in his situation that have no clue as to what to watch for. Right. So many of the people that we spoke to in the film with, with regard to Carol said, you know, Carol was saying to them, I'm, I'm so tired, I'm sleep deprived, et cetera, et cetera. You know, listing off many of this sort of triggers that now we've learned that we would watch out for, but that everyone should know about. Right. They were all saying like, you know, well, other mothers were saying, we just thought, you know, it's just part of being a mom. Well, you know, okay. You know, it, it's not just part of being a mom when it adds up to the degree that it add up to with with Carol. And mm -hmm. so if we become educated as a culture, if it becomes as mandatory to learn this stuff as it is to learn how to, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, this is a preventable illness that every single one of us beginning at a young age needs to be educated on. And these, because look, we're going to continue having babies to propagate the population, right? And to, mm -hmm. to continue our society. So if that's what's going to happen, then we should know what to look for. You know, everyone in our family, everyone, everyone in everybody's family should know, oh, this is not good. I should tell somebody about this. Mom is not feeling well or mom is not, right. you know, it's just something that needs to be part of the societal curriculum. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I do believe that the way you've done this film, it will really help continue that conversation because it outlines so clearly that this could have been prevented. And I think when you were speaking earlier, I was thinking too that there's really like, we hear the case in the news, we hear a couple of things, blips here and there about, you know, what's going on. But really, afterwards, there's a whole family that's still suffering, mom is still suffering. There's a real lack of really anything substantial in the way of actually helping people after the tragedy. But there's so much we can do before. Yes. And, you know, the way it affects people, even untreated postpartum illnesses in a family unit that don't reach this tragic, you know, place, thank goodness, these are rarer cases. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I've shown this film to people, many people, many people have said, oh, yeah, my mother had that. Or, oh, oh yes, that was my aunt. She was never right again mm -hmm. after the kids. And untreated, it remains untreated in many mm -hmm. cases. And it really affects the family. It affects the relationship with the kids. It, it can go on and on for a long time. And it can sometimes get worse after multiple children. And, you know, there's so much shame and stigma with mental illness that I think that's part of what the film is trying to do, too, which is right. to just... One thing that's kind of radical about the film that I like are all of these people talking directly to the camera saying, this is what happened to me. Yeah. And I've never really seen that collection of uh, women anywhere talking and fathers talking about what they saw. 
or what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the way I'm thinking of it now is that it's almost like people are getting hit with a double whammy. First, they're dealing with the illness itself and then the trauma from the illness in particular for people like Carol, who are so traumatized by their own experience that they are blocking it out entirely. And these are the more severe and extreme cases. But then there are people who don't commit infanticide, but still have very traumatizing experiences. And without the right help, just as you mentioned, they could deal with this for a long time, Mm -hmm. Um, a really long time. You know, it was... It was one of the challenges that we faced with the film, because if you look at the sort of postpartum spectrum, and I believe my numbers are correct here, but they may be a bit off, but I think they're correct. There are about 4 million babies born every year in the U.S. Mm. Of those 4 million babies, somewhere in the vicinity of one in five moms, in a thousand moms or so, will experience some form of postpartum depression. And postpartum depression being defined as something that's not just the baby blues that disappear, you know, within a week or two after a birth, but that can go on for weeks longer. Mm -hmm. So that's about 800,000 women. And then if you look at the postpartum psychosis numbers, about between one and two mothers out of every 1,000 births will experience postpartum psychosis. That doesn't mean that they'll kill their babies, but they'll have a psychotic break. And a psychotic break, as it was defined to us, means they have a break from reality. Mm -hmm. And when a woman suffers from a psychotic break or when she suffers from postpartum psychosis, it's considered a medical emergency and that her children need to be taken from her immediately because something bad could happen. And if you bring out the numbers just a hair more, of those one to two moms out of every thousand births that will experience postpartum psychosis, 4% of those moms will commit infanticide and 5% of those moms will commit suicide. So that's still big, big numbers every year. Hundreds of mothers killing their babies and hundreds more killing themselves. So these are very, very big numbers that need to be taken seriously. But one of the challenges that we had was, okay, so this is a story about postpartum psychosis, infanticide, and that particular event touches a very small number, hundreds of number, hundreds of women a year, as opposed to the nearly a million moms, nearly a million moms that will actually have some sort of postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. So we tried to sort of be clear, A, to distinguish the difference between postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, and to make it clear that one doesn't lead to the next. It's not like, oh, your postpartum depression is going to become so severe that you're now, you're going to graduate to postpartum psychosis. No, they're two different things. Yes. However, we wanted to make sure that we touched all of the avenues of this sort of arc of postpartum illness literally from baby blues all the way up to infanticide. Mm. That was one of the challenges because we don't want to confuse people thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm anxious or I'm feeling depressed and have them think, oh my God, I'm going to kill my baby. These are different things. And again, this is why we need to be educated. We need to know the difference. We need to know what the signs are and we need to basically work to get our laws changed via the legal system. Oh, yeah, 100%. I'm so glad that you are distinguishing that because it is very confusing for people, you know, who aren't in the field, who don't understand this, that it's very specifically that one doesn't lead to the other. I'm just thinking of a local case here very recently that looks to be a postpartum psychosis infanticide case. Just looking through the social media posts afterwards, it is, you know, a lot of people having strong reactions and fear that one thing's going to lead to the other and or, you know, vilifying the mother or some people thankfully are thinking it might be postpartum related, but 
they all call it depression and it's just not. I think your film is a huge part of educating the community. And I'm curious, like, who do you think, who should be watching this? Who do you want to be watching this film? Well, I think the audience that I'd like to reach out to and really work on getting them to view the film are younger women. You know, I've always had this fantasy that the film should actually go through all the sorority systems in the country and go to universities. And because these are the women who are going to be moms and they're going to be future judges and lawyers and doctors and nurses and psychiatrists. And I think that if they had this, because once you see the film, you say, oh, this is a real thing. Yeah. This is real. Mm -hmm. This actually happens. And we are not understanding it in our culture. And all these other cultures all around the world seem to have no problem understanding it. You know, if a woman in Carol's condition were identified in a place like Sweden, the first thing they do is take her and put her to sleep for, let her sleep for two days and see how she feels after that. And they make sure the baby is okay. And they, they just, would never leave a woman so desperate all by herself, you know, unable to really care for kids. So I think if we can get to the young people, I think it would be, for me, it would be a huge triumph to educate before you have the baby. And I find the young people are really, really interested in the information. They really want to know, especially the dads. That's great. Yeah, I was going to say the dads, it's like, you know, I agree with Veronica. I think that young women, it's a real target audience for us. And from what we've seen in our own sort of, you know, small focus groups and screenings that we've been doing since we finished editing, the young audience really responds to this because they haven't heard it. So it's like, why? You know, they're shocked by it. But there are a few dads in the film who talk about their own incidences and with their wives and how they were so blown away and blindsided by the whole thing. And I think that if fathers can get a look at this film that too will be very, very helpful because they'll know as a result of the film what sorts of things they should have their radar up for, what sorts of things, things that they might have just written off as, oh my God, you know, she's she's bitchy again or she's doing that again. Like mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, written off to sort of this traditional right. misconception. Well, no, now they're going to have their radar up higher on this thing. And not that there's any order. I'd like as many people to see the film as possible, but I think young women, sure. I, if, we had a, if I had to prioritize, I'd say young women first and then fathers, men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And just as you were talking through this too, I'm thinking of all the other systems that could benefit from seeing a documentary like this, like the medical system and, and people who are sort of the first responder type folks who really don't know what to do with this kind of information. There's just first responders, very important, very important. I mean, you know, the cops show up at a house like this and there's a heinous homicide scene and, you know, they're looking, oh, my God, there's been horrible murder here, Mm -hmm. you know, so their first instinct from what we've learned. And again, I'm sure there are police officers out there and law enforcement officials out there that are not what I'm about to describe. But the first instinct is, oh, let's get this person cuffed and locked up as quick as possible because they're crazy, maniacal danger, Mm -hmm. as opposed to let's get this person to a hospital Mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very different sort of distinction. I should, I got to get this person into a jail as opposed to I got to get this person into a hospital bed. Right. Yeah. I mean, I agree that 
just getting this out to as many people as possible, but the people who are most likely to be affected directly, it seems really important, young women, young families, young men, um, really hoping that that's the case. So with all of the intricacies of this documentary, I mean, you, I don't know how much footage you got and how you whittled it down to what you did get. What was the process like of making this film? Well, Eamon was really the leading part of making the film as the director and also as the cinematographer. As you can imagine, it's a very difficult subject. And for a long time, we would visit with the family or we would go to the court, the courthouse and listen to the hearings and all of that. And it took a long time for all of those people to really trust us, I would think. Wouldn't you say so, Eamon? It took, it was a real process for them to believe that we were uh, yes, kind of I mean, on their you know, side, I think, really. Yeah, you know, I mean, generally, at least in my experience of making documentaries, which I've done for 25 years with my partner, John Watkin at Planet Grande, you know, we'll make a film over the course of anywhere from five months to a year and a half, let's say. And a year and a half being on the, you know, pretty on the far end of that. We could sort of make these things certainly within a year. Mm-hmm. And we made lots of documentaries, tons of documentaries over the years. And uh, this process required an unbelievable amount of patience. And we, oh, couldn't right. approach, we couldn't approach it like we usually did. Just sort of, okay, let's set up this shoot, let's do, let's do this, let's do that. No, no, no. This right. thing was, it had its own rhythm. It was mm-hmm. super sensitive. And we needed just to be patient with it. And as Veronica alluded to, it took us a long time to gain the trust of, you know, Carol's family and lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, to mm-hmm. tr- sort of have them open up to us. So... You know, in the midst of sort of doing the Carol story, then we were out and about all over the country interviewing experts and witnesses and survivors that we knew we wanted to include in the film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that kind of stuff we were able to gather as sort of on a, on a schedule like we were used to. Mm-hmm. But the Carol story, not only because we had to gain the trust, but also because there was a court case involved and the thing itself played out over a number of years. Oh, um, sure. You know, and I guess I should mention, too, that, you know, this was a film that we didn't have a broadcaster behind us from the beginning. So we had to self-fund this film. And with the help of a few incredibly generous angel investors, Robin Moore and, and Tricia Small in particular, and also Impact Partners helped us with this film as well in the Utah Film Center, we were able to sort of bring in the amounts of money we needed to keep the doors open and to keep us moving forward but it was funded in a very non-traditional manner. And as a result, we had to work with extremely, extreme bare-bone crews. I mean, quite often I would be out as the director, as the, I was the cameraman, I was often the audio guy clipping the mic on, I would mm-hmm. be the PA carrying the gear around. Not stuff that I was necessarily used to, you know, in all the other films when we would have big crews with us, but also by the nature of the sensitivity of this project, it didn't call for large mm-hmm. crews. It called mm-hmm. for very, very kind of fly on the wall. You know, you're just there and don't make it, don't make a spectacle of yourself. That was the production. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. 
And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff approach. Well, and also, you know, the ability to get close to Rudy Coronado, the father of the children, and then Carol's husband, you know, how to get him to trust enough that he would let you drive around in the car with him or go follow him to work or just to reveal all the things that he reveals in the film about you know, had he known what he was doing, he would have done everything differently. Mm. He just didn't know. Right. He didn't know that this was even in the realm of possibility. He had never heard of it. He didn't know any of the signs, you know, her behavior those last few days and how she looked and things like that. Now he understands and he tries to talk to a lot of people about it when he can. You know, he's also of course, very shattered by everything that had happened and has never really, you know, fully regained his life or his way in the world. But if he can do anything to help somebody else, he would. Mm. And he does talk to people, especially when they reach out to him and they're going through something like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, Eamon, you did an amazing job on getting people to trust you and to, you know, reveal really reveal what it is that they went through during these during well, these really tough times. Thank you. And not to sound like a mutual admiration society, but I should say that <laughs> without Veronica, the, the, film, the film really really wouldn't have gotten made because she was the one who went out and basically talked to our angel investors and convinced them that this was a, this was a film that was worthwhile jumping on board for. This was a, mm-hmm. it's a very, very important film. And without her sort of dogged pursuit to just get it done, get it done, get it done. And she too won the confidence of, of many, many people, you know, including the nation's leading organization on postpartum illnesses, postpartum support international. Veronica was able to sort of, you know, convince PSI that this was a film that needed to be made. And as a result, that helped open doors for us to many of the experts that we needed to get to. And our affiliation with PSI or our connection to PSI at least gave a certain trust to people who we were looking out for. I said, okay, well, PSI is endorsing these guys, and I'm going to talk to them because 
that right. make them, you know, that was sort of a, the stamp of approval that we needed. So, you know, again, like I say, I don't want to be a mutual admiration society, but in a film of this nature that is such a bare bones, you know, sort of passion mm-hmm. project, like yeah. we're going to get this thing made one way or the other. It really boils down to the few people who are the engine behind the thing. And I can't thank Veronica enough and I can't <laughs> thank Rob and Tricia enough and and uh, my yeah. business partner, John Watkin. I mean, again, it's just been a very small team. And super we were laughing. We, thank you. We were laughing about that when we were doing the credits of the film. We're like, wow, that's all. <laughs> just a couple of people. Normally, you know, normally when the credits roll, it's, you know, dozens and dozens of people in every department. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we would have to keep putting our names there again and again and again. <laughs> right. It really is important because it's really, you know, if we can help in any way and maybe something will help with Carol's case, you know, after she was convicted, they did try to take it through the appellate court and the appeal was denied. And then there was an attempt to have it uh, presented to the Supreme Court in California, but very, very few cases get before the Supreme Court here, 5% of cases. Oh, and gosh. Carol's was not one. Yeah, Carol's was not one of them. So it may seem now that, you know, she has no no more legal opportunities or avenues for her or her family to pursue. And that's very disheartening at this point. So that's it? There's nothing else that can be done legally? Well, not in the traditional avenues that are available to us. You know, could people become interested in her case and put pressure on people who are you know, running the criminal justice system in California to maybe evaluate her state of mind and things like that. Yes, I think that could happen. Hmm. My hope is that we would stir up enough discussion with this film that there would be some pressure would, you know, some pressure would start to happen. Mm -hmm. People might take a new interest in her case Mm -hmm. and maybe there's some way for her if possible, to be moved from the general population into the psychiatric wards of the prison system where she would get better care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that we've seen with podcasts like Serial, you know, that sort of looked at the Adan Syed case. You know, we've seen that that media attention on a particular case and public pressure to look more closely at that case can work. I'm hoping that through the film and we actually have a five podcast about Not Carol's as well, and sort of a, about our experience making Not Carol. And, you know, through those two vehicles, the, the, the documentary and the podcast, I'm hoping that enough people can, that the name Carol Coronado will resonate and they will drum up a public support for her that will, mm-hmm. you know, keep this case in the eyes and ears of the policymakers that need to know about it. What strikes me as you guys are talking through this is that you and your process have become like a part of her story. Um, Just being advocates in this way, I mean, ideally, hopefully something else comes of it. But even I'm just imagining how, you know, potentially healing it was to have advocates like you around, even for Rudy and the family to see that people are interested and that people care is that, you know, you have sort of become part of her trajectory, her story, and, you know, for the better. Once you got a hold of this story, once you learned about the story, and once you learned, and Carol is sort of a textbook case Mm -hmm. of postpartum psychosis, all of the triggers that are associated with this particular illness, Carol had, every single one. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. So she's sort of the 
textbook for this case. And once you start learning about her, which we did in detail, and once you start learning about the disease, which we have in detail, we couldn't turn away. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, in, what is it, in for a penny, in for a pound, whatever. It was, there was no turning back once yeah. it all became clear what was going on. Yeah, yeah. I can hear how much you care about the case and her, and I can see that in the film, too. You guys have done a beautiful job. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, yeah. yeah. And I think when you, I had never sat through a, a murder trial before, and, you know, seeing the power of the legal system and seeing the holes and the faults and the way things can go down for you if you don't have a lot of resources, which Carol did not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very telling. It's very, very telling. Yeah. And I think and at one point in the film, the psychiatrist who saw Carol the most while she was incarcerated at the Twin Towers awaiting her trial, said that of all the 15,000 patients in the Twin Towers at the time, that she was the most ill of all those people. And so it says something about how blind we are in this system. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we don't think about the girls and the beautiful little girls and how uh, sad and horrendous it is to think of what happened to them. And we spend a good part of the film in the first third of the film, actually showing as many pictures of the girls as we can Mm -hmm. and their birthday parties. And it's very, very important not to forget Mm -hmm. that they were here and that they were loved and that they really mattered and that it wasn't this cruel, you know, premeditated act by this woman who wanted to you know, change her life or walk away from her life, which is what the prosecutor accused her of being. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can never forget them, the children, but, you know, she is here now and, mm-hmm. you know, justice was not served in her case. Right. Yeah. I'm so hopeful that this documentary will just serve as an education and awareness for so many people. I mean, I'm thinking of women right now who are awaiting trial for this very thing. And gosh, if this film could get across the eyes of the people involved in that case, that it could change somebody's life to be able to understand this, the reality of this, and not just these assumptions that we've come to make about women in these situations. I think that's such a powerful tool that you have created here. And I'm really excited for people to see this. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for your support. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people go to find more about the Not Carol documentary? We have a website, which is www.notcarol.com. And on that website, you can hear the podcast and you can see the trailer for the film. And it also talks a lot about the process of where we are with screenings and what upcoming events are happening around the film and the podcast. Yep. We don't yet have a broadcast partner. We're in the process now of looking for that sort of distribution for the film. So I'm hoping that there is a courageous broadcaster out there that will recognize the importance of the film, both from an information point of view, but also appreciate the film from a filmmaking point of view and put it on one of the major platforms, whether it's an HBO or a Netflix or whoever, one of the major platforms. That's our goal because that will reach the most eyeballs then. But in the meantime, we're doing screenings and workshops and things of that nature. So can people aiming big, yeah, well, but, you know, starting small. Can people request you if they're interested in having a screening near them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
what we do also with our screenings is we try to organize the experts in the area that could come to the screening and then hold a post-screening discussion afterwards. Sure. And that's been really helpful because we really find when people see the film that they want to talk about it. Absolutely. Right afterwards. It's a lot to digest. It's a big story with a lot of information and also, you know, a sad and tragic ending. And so Mm -hmm. you kind of don't want to just walk out after the screening is over. You Mm -hmm. kind of want to, you know, be with others and talk about it and learn, learn that you can be part of the solution too, in some ways. Yeah, I agree with that. That's amazing. Okay, so thank you both so much for coming on and sharing your work and your passion about this film, Not Carol. I'm going to be adding all of the links in every place that people can find you and the Not Carol documentary in our show notes. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Kat. Thank you so much, Eamon and Veronica, for coming on and sharing your deep and such valuable work. For those of you who would like to learn more about the film Not Carol, you can go to www.notcarol.com, where you can find information about the film and also the five-part podcast, which in and of itself is very powerful and meaningful. And for those of you who are touched by this and or concerned that you or someone you love might be having symptoms that are related to mental health in the pregnancy or postpartum period, please reach out to Postpartum Support International at postpartum.net. If you have any questions or you'd like to give your thoughts or feedback about this episode, feel free to email me, info at momandmind.com. So glad you could be with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.